Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and CypherTrace. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Tuesday, June 16th, and today's main topic is a conversation with Jesse Felder. Jesse is the founder of The Felder Report and a just brilliant market analyst. That is going to be a great conversation, but first, let's go to The Brief. First up on The Brief today is the return of retail sales. So what happened? The Commerce Department released a report that said that retail sales, which includes both online and offline purchases, increased 17.7% between April and May of this year, and that is seasonally adjusted. This is much bigger than the predicted 7.7% increase that economists were expecting. Now, it's still lower in total, obviously, than February. February saw $527.3 billion in sales as compared to $485.5 billion for May. But still, the fact that the growth was 10% higher even than predicted by economists suggests that there is more confidence perhaps in the markets than some leading experts thought. Why does this matter? Well, it's exactly that. It has to do with this question of confidence. Stocks are up on the news, and one of the key questions coming out of the COVID-19 shutdowns is, what demand will be gone forever? How much can the economy bounce back? Will there be major structural barriers or just shifts in consumer behavior that make it impossible to get that V-shaped recovery that people are hoping for? This suggests that some economists may have overpredicted a shift in demand, at least in the short term. Still, I do think that it's worth being cautious and breaking down a layer to focus on the specifics. For example, while restaurants are back 30% from April, they're still down 40% year over year, and I don't think anyone believes that we're going to see necessarily a quick return to the same demand that they were predicting before. The key question going forward is going to be jobs returning. If jobs return, everything else will follow. Clearly, people are willing to spend money and have interest and demand to do so. The question is whether they're going to have the resources. This brings us to our second brief topic, which is job concerns remain. I wanted to point out two data points on this question of jobs and whether they're coming back. First, Hilton is cutting 22% of its corporate workforce. This represents about 2,100 jobs. And importantly, this is not the first wave of layoffs that were people on the front lines, your low-level employees doing kind of the day-in, day-out customer-facing stuff. This is more executive-type positions. And this could represent part of a new wave of professional white-collar jobs that are being impacted by the second-order effects of changed long-term demand from COVID. Another example of an industry seeing some of those second-order effects is the advertising industry. WPP, which is the largest company in that space, expects that ad spending is going to dip 13% this year. That's opposed to predicted growth of 4%. Now, so far, this industry hasn't seen widespread layoffs, but it wouldn't be implausible when you have you know, a 17-point gap between what you expected and what was actually possible that you have to figure out how to get budgets in line. There's also questions of how you plan for the next year. All of this is to say that this question of jobs remains really open, and I think this is why you saw in prepared remarks to Congress today, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, reiterated that this crisis could take a while to come back from. He has taken on this role of, on the one hand, trying to reassure markets with unlimited cash and all the things that he's promising, but at the same time trying to get maybe some of the irrational exuberance of the market tamped down. And 
really to me, the key things that matters are one, what happens with the disease and whether we keep seeing numbers go up, two, what happens with jobs and whether we see people return to jobs as we hope, and three, what happens with demand. Do we see people shift their behaviors to try to be more resilient? Or do people just act the way that they did in January and February? Last up on the brief, two quick notes about central bank digital currencies. The first is that South Korea has taken the next steps on its CBDC journey. So in December, they had put together a task force that was really more or less designed to keep an eye on other countries, to see what they're doing, to start basically having some sense of what's going on in this space but not really to be proactive. Well, it's going a little farther now, and they've set up a legal panel to advise on regulatory sticking points, so a lot more intentionality in that move. Another little detail, which is not strictly speaking about central bank digital currencies, which relates, though, in a way, is that Facebook has finally turned on payments. They've rolled out payments via WhatsApp in Brazil, which is the second largest market for WhatsApp in the world at 120 million users. And Zuckerberg has been talking a lot more about where Libra might fit in the Facebook model and how ads and payments could come together. And so when you see them turn on a payments infrastructure, even if it's not technically Libra, in a huge market like Brazil, it's worth taking note of. But with that, let's shift to our main conversation with Jesse Felder. I'm really excited to share this conversation. Jesse is a person I've been following for a long time on Twitter. He's one of those folks where I honestly believe that you could probably turn off most of the other accounts on FinTwit and you'd still get a huge portion of what was going on in the conversation. He curates it really, really well. And Jesse's been in the finance industry for a long time. He started his career at Bear Stearns and co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and left that during kind of the height of the dot-com boom to go be independent and build an independent remote financial analysis business that's called the Felder Report and has been doing that ever since. I think Jesse brings a really human perspective to his discussions of markets, and his discussions of markets get at really, really key issues. By way of example, an important piece recently he wrote was called Fight the Fed. And to give you a little taste of what you're in for in this interview, I'm just going to start by reading an excerpt from that. Extreme monetary policy has not only artificially inflated capital, but has also greatly exacerbated the boom-bust cycle, leading to two once-in-a-generation economic crises in just over a decade. Inflating asset prices and encouraging increasing indebtedness beyond what the natural economic cycle can support is not a sustainable way of trying to manage the economy. Even former Fed Chair Janet Yellen lamented after the financial crisis, somehow we need to go to an economy that is using its resources, operating at full employment, but doing so in a way that isn't reliant on bubbles. The economy has only become far more dependent upon bubbles in the capital markets since then. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jesse Felder. I hope you enjoy it. All right. I am here with Jesse Felder. Jesse, thanks so much for joining. Hey, happy to be here, Nathaniel. Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. I'm really excited to have you here. As I was just saying to you, uh, I feel like you're one of a, of a small handful of people who I could completely ignore the rest of, uh, of FinTwit and actually get uh, all, all the relevant information that I needed. Uh, but it, it's, it should be a, a really fun conversation. Um, we're living through such a, a strange kind of moment of, uh, of change in some ways. But for those who are unfamiliar with you, could you just share a little bit about your background and what you spend your time on? 
Sure. Yeah, I was. I've always been interested in in finance and the markets. I actually, um, when I was eight years old, I think my dad got one of the first Apple personal computers, and um, he got me a game called Millionaire, which was essentially a stock market simulator, and I was addicted to it. <laughs> and so <laughs> he got me a subscription to Barrons, and I started kind of paper trading when I was uh, in like junior high, and. Um, Ever since then, I've had just a passion for the markets. So I, I worked for Bear Stearns in LA and co-founded a hedge fund down there. Did that for a few years, and before I moved to Bend, where I live now, and uh, basically just write about the markets um, these days. Love it. Yeah, you are uh, ahead of the curve on the work remotely and kind of build a build an information business trend. I feel like. I guess so. I mean, you know, yeah, Bend has grown from, I don't know, I think it was 40,000 people uh, when we moved here to it's just over 100,000 now, which is, I think it's in the top five or six cities in, in the state of Oregon now. So it's kind of a fast growing rural, um, you know, community. But, uh, but yeah, I, sp- I spend the vast majority of my time, you mentioned my Twitter feed. Um, on Twitter, I, I basically share everything that I'm reading um, that I find of value. Uh, and so I spend, you know, several hours every morning just kind of going through different feeds, um, you know, news feeds and looking for trends. And so I, I try and just kind of track those trends, kind of where, you know, up and coming trends, you know, trends that seem to be kind of waning and dying out. And, and you know, because it really is these trends and narratives that drive markets, I think. And so um, to me, kind of understanding those narratives helps you understand what's going on. Couldn't agree more. I think we, we actually spent a lot of time here on narratives and and how they shift and you know trying to understand kind of the meaning behind things. Because I often find that the way that we interpret uh, financial information or market information is as relevant, particularly for driving uh, future behavior, as whatever the the underlying principle of it is. Um, so, I, I actually, that's a great segue to to let's dive into something that's been obviously uh, dominating the narrative cycle for the last week or so, which is this Robin Hood rally, right? This emergence of this class of uh, of renegade, you know, R slash Wall Street bets folks. What do you make of all this? I know you've been you've been tracking this part this story. Yeah, well, it, you know, it reminds me, I, I, like I mentioned before, I was at a hedge fund um, kind of during the peak, uh, the, the last couple of years of the um, dot-com mania. And I was the head trader of the fund. We had our own broker dealer. And so I had kind of a front row seat to, um, you know, to what was going on in the markets at the time. We also had a couple of New York hedge funds that were trading through our broker dealer. So, um and it would you know would call me up and and place trades through me, and and so I, I you know we also had a bunch of individual investors that wanted to you know trade through our our broker dealer and I mean for example I had one guy who was a retired stuntman he he retired because he made so much money day trading but he was a stunt <laughs> stuntman in L.A. Um, and you know had gotten a settlement from something he got injured or something like that and so I had a big chunk of change and he put it all into these dot com stocks. And, you know, tripled his money in six months and thought he was a genius. And, um, you know, that was just one example of, of millions of people who were, I mean, maybe not millions, but tons and tons of people who were, who were doing this and making the same decision. So to me, it's very similar to what we saw back then. You know, the, the difference is, um, I think it's, it's mo- this time is mostly young people who weren't old enough to remember the the dot-com mania and they're they're trading in um 
you know, to me, the, the biggest difference between then and now is back then there was, you know, these, these internet stocks and the internet was a brand new invention that was really, you know, going to change, change the economy, uh, you know, make people more productive. It was a, it was a gold rush for the companies that were figuring out ways to monetize it. Um, and so there was something real behind it. But today you see, you know, like um, a lot of these young investors buying Hertz shares and, you know, the Hertz offering came out today and it explicitly says, you know, you're very likely to to lose all of your money if you buy this offering <laughs> and people are still, you know, lining up to buy it. And so to me, the, 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 what makes this even more extraordinary is this is the. You know, Jeremy Grantham uh, recently pointed out this is, you know, that we're in the top 10% of equity valuations in history. If you look at, you know, a thing like the Buffett Yardstick, we're in the top 1% of, uh, you know, valuations in stock market history. And we're in the top, you know, the bottom 1% worst economic outcomes this quarter right now. It's going to be the worst quarter of GDP we've ever had in this country. So to me, you know, people are not buying into this kind of gold rush internet idea. They're buying into, uh, in the midst of the worst uh, recession in history and um, in the middle of a global pandemic that is you know, only in its early stages. So to me, it's even more um, desperately euphoric than than it was back then. Yeah, it's really interesting. And this was actually, you kind of jumped ahead to the to my follow-up question, which is there's obviously some aspect of this that is uh, a mania story that we've seen play out over and over again. And it's funny thinking about back to the dot-com boom and, and specifically this kind of Robin Hood moment. Um, I remember, and for some reason, I well, one, I can't find very many people who remember it. I can't find any mention of it online, but I remember when E-Trade first came around and there was a, they, they had like a virtual stock market game in like 98, 99, 2000. And it was literally like uh, it was, you know, fantasy football, but for, for for stocks. And I remember all of my friends. We were in high school at the time, and we got just totally obsessed with it. And we would like sneak into the uh, the library, you know, to the library computers in the middle of the afternoon. And I can only imagine. Uh, that sort of same instinct, but now where you can actually just open an account and start doing it, you know, it was very yeah. different then because it was still in that realm of fantasy. But the the question that I had, which you kind of hinted at, is uh, is the what makes this different? So the, the what makes this different than other kind of manias that we've seen in the past? Uh, other of these kind of you know manic moments where people just flood into the market. And I guess you answered from the standpoint of just this fundamental disconnect between um, well, this disconnect between fundamentals. And in the market, right? The the economy and and markets in some ways, but then I wonder if you find anything different about the participants and and what their attitude or ethos is coming in, right? Is this just a, you know the latest wave or the newest wave of you know uh, younger people coming in trying to kind of take advantage of uh, of a crazy moment to make some money, or do you think that it reflects a larger sort of uh, frustration with opportunity or desire to to have some? Different different type of mobility? Well, you know, I, I just come back to, um, you know, there are, you're absolutely right. There are things that make this time unique. There are things that, you know, make this time the same as every time before it. One of the quotes I think about is, you know, from JP Morgan, and, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but I, I, he said something to the effect of, nothing so undermines your financial judgment as seeing your neighbor get rich. And so, you know, that's a huge driving force for this, is people have heard about all of those traders who have been buying the dip since 2009 and have been making tons of money in in just buying the dip and and so there's this kind of it's become a meme essentially um, now for a long long time that 
that if you just buy the dip, you are guaranteed to make money. And, and so there's that fear of missing the opportunity, that fear of missing out um, is what drill, really drives, drove the housing bubble. Uh, it drove the dot-com mania and it's driving this too. So, you know, that's kind of the same um, as, as previous times. So I think what is, what is maybe different about this is the Fed has come to the market's rescue so many times that people now believe the Fed will never let the stock market go down. It's a can't lose game. So I can even buy bankrupt companies and the Fed will make sure I don't lose money. Um, as I think kind of the mindset that people have, and, and that's different. Uh, you know, people weren't buying the market because of the Fed back in the dot-com mania or even buying housing because of the Fed, uh, you know, during the housing bubble. But now the central bank has played such a huge role in propping up asset prices for so long that this moral hazard has, has reached a point where, um, you know, we're seeing risk-taking on a totally new level, like we haven't probably ever seen before in the financial markets. And it, it's it's directly because the Fed has encouraged precisely that. Yeah, it's actually really interesting that you, you kind of locate that as one of the key differences. Obviously, one of the embodiments of this, as well as leaders of it and champions of it, has been uh, Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. And it's been fascinating to watch his journey from at the very beginning when he got in. I mean, he, you know, he, like many, I think, or at least this is the characterization, there weren't sports to focus on. There wasn't sports gambling to focus on. And so he shifted attention, right? And there had been, interestingly, you know, paying attention to uh, financial and other types of media, a lot of people who have been like, when are we going to see Barstool for sport, for finance, right? And, and this kind of hunger for a different type of uh, attitude in financial media. And he just stepped into this void like a tornado. And I remember at the beginning, uh, you know, he's subsequently taken on this mantle of I'm the greatest day trader alive, right? Uh, but at the beginning, it was all almost coming to grips with what you were just saying, right? Him paying attention to the Fed for the first time and not being able to believe the numbers that he was seeing thrown around, right? Obviously being kind of a, a we focus on that type of thing a lot here. And I remember posting some of his uh, his early rants about how the Fed was turning the dollar into shroot bucks, right? Kind of referencing office space. And so it's been fascinating to see, you can almost map what you were just saying in the journey of this one person. Yeah, and and I think you know I haven't paid super close attention to him, but I do think he is representative of a whole group of traders, and he certainly has one and a half million followers or whatever it is, people that are listening to what he says. But I mean this this idea that uh, you know buy the dip, you have to buy the dip because the Fed, you know, stocks never go down. Uh, you know, something that he's been tweeting, you know, that he's going to make infinity money um, by just you know continuing to just buy stocks. These things have become such powerful memes that, you know, I I was talking with Rana Fruhar, who writes for the Financial Times, and she's two or three weeks ago, she said her, um, I think, 12-year-old son approached her about opening a Robinhood account because you have to buy the dip. And I said, wait, where did he hear this at 12 years old? And she said, it's all over their social media. Uh, you know, it's um, you know, all the different platforms, you know, that the kids are on, um, you know, you just see these memes that you have to buy the dip. And, and so to me, yeah, it's, it's gone 
it's gone so extreme and become you know such a such a meme among the younger crowd uh, you know there's another guy that i follow on twitter who said you know his 10 year old son tells him he can't play fortnite during the trading hours anymore because all of his you know his teammates fortnite teammates have quit fortnite at least during trading hours because they're playing the robin hood game on their phones <laughs> um so yeah i mean it's when you have 10 year olds that you know uh have given up gaming for the the new hot game that tells you how far we've come. Yeah, well, and it's wild too because then you like, uh, what do you expect? Uh, you know, when you have this whole new set of actors who is completely convinced it's a game, and that traditionally the game has been rigged to try to find different points of leverage that no one else thought, you know, and just go wild with it, right? Like this whole bankruptcy trade. I mean, it's not a it's not a justification for it or, or, or an argument that it's smart. It's more just like you're going to see some wild and wacky things when you introduce this entirely different set of actors who have almost no interest in the fundamentals. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we're seeing these things that we've literally never seen before. This, this offering by Hertz is the first time a company that's essentially, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the, you know, position of debtor in possession. Essentially, the the debt holders are in possession of the con- the company. They're in control of the company, and they're selling stock in the open market. It's never happened before in history because nobody would ever, you know, in their right mind, go buy a stock offering from a bankrupt company. Because literally, you know, I, I, most of these people clearly, I mean, maybe they do understand it. I don't know, but the you know, this company, the debt holders, are raising money to pay themselves back. Uh, all this money's you know going to go directly to pay pay the debt holders and there's you know it's it's very very likely that there will be zero dollars left for the equity holders um and so i think there's certainly a lot of people that don't understand that um but i think they're probably traders too you know i think jim cramer pointed out that um you know probably what's going on here too is you have uh institutions or maybe probably even just algorithms that are gaming these robin hood uh, stocks. So they see that, you know, Hertz is maybe the most popular stock on Ramad Hood today. So tomorrow morning, they're going to go bid up the shares in the pre-market and get Robinhood traders even more excited about buying Hertz. So then they push the stock up even higher, algos or whoever it is, liquidates. And it's really kind of a, like a pump and dump type of strategy. And this is also a classic thing that's happened happened in the dot-com mania. There was, there, you know, message boards. There was this guy, Tokyo Joe, um, on, on the message boards who'd pre, you know, uh, just basically like uh, pr- promote these uh, penny stocks or what have you. He'd buy them before he promoted them. His followers would push the price up. He'd sell. And, you know, it was a front running scam. Um, he and eventually got, you know, sued by the SEC. So I, I think we'll probably see something similar come out of this where there is somebody front running this. This is not just retail getting excited about bankrupt stocks. This is. Whether it's, you know, uh, institutional actors acting with discretion or it's just algorithms that they've programmed to try. I mean, everybody knows that Robinhood sells their order flow to Citadel and, you know, to what have you. So the algos know where there is interest in the stock market by these by these traders. And now that there's millions of them trading on Robinhood, it's even more lucrative for these algos to to, to try and game it. So um, it's a really interesting time. But I do think. Uh, you know, it's probably time to look at these things and see how these traders are being manipulated and, and, and potentially probably prosecute somebody for, uh, you know, for, for, I guess, exacerbating the whole thing. 
Yeah, in uh is interesting cuz you know the the crypto community has watched this whole thing go down with uh interest and almost a bit of deja vu from the 2017-2018 you know initial coin offering madness and there was a term then that some people used called the shitcoin waterfall and basically the idea was these you know projects would pre-sell uh, their tokens to the most reputable or highest brand, actually is a better way to put it, highest brand value investors uh, at you know a 90% discount on what they were going to offer it for um, at the ICO. And then when they got that first round of, uh, of high brand investors, maybe they'd sell it to another round of investors at a 50% presale, all the way on down to the actual kind of token sale, which is all of a sudden is just dumped on retail. And often there weren't any lockups. And so those investors could just sell their, you know, their, their shares that they bought, you know, at 10 cents on the dollar for the full retail price. And for a little while, the retail people were happy with it too, because anything that had news that it was going to be listed on Coinbase or something like that would shoot up. And it was just this madness, right? And it, it was a flash in the pan when all was said and done. It lasted less than a year and it was over. And, you know, the SEC is still kind of working its way through the the offenders to find the most egregious. But it's uh it, it's it, there's always someone at the end of the musical chairs line that is left holding the bag and it is is never the institutions that uh, that maybe they missed the trade at the beginning, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was explaining it to my my son. Um, you know, my son's twenty years old. He's stationed on an airbase in Turkey, and he called me uh, last week to tell me how many of his friends on the base are bragging about the money they're making trading one dollar stocks on Robinhood. And I started explaining it to him. You know, they're buying J.C. Penney and Hertz and and, and these things and. Uh, they're bankrupt. The stock prices are worthless. They're 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 almost guaranteed that they're you know these things are going to go to zero over the next several months. But they're trying to make money in the meantime. And so he said, "Oh, so you're telling me it's a pyramid scheme?" I said, "Exactly right. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's a pyramid scheme that you need to get people interested in this. You know, you're going to buy it, and you have to get people interested in it to push the price higher for you to make money and get out." Um, you know, it, it's literally no different than a pyramid scheme. What's going on in some of these stocks right now? Uh, so, yeah, I, the SEC is going to look into it, and it's always, you know, a few years after the fact that you know these prosecutions happen. It's wild. Well, thanks for your son for his service, by the way. Um, but the uh, the the thing that I want to ask you about is I want to come back to this idea of. Uh, of the Fed and the Fed's role in this and and this kind of identification of uh, the Fed won't let anything fail. But first, I, wa- I want to talk a little bit about this disconnect uh, or this potential disconnect between the stock market and the underlying economy. And I-, I wanted to ask whether you think that this, any part of this reflects a larger issue of, of that kind of growing chasm uh, between kind of fundamentals and the, the traditional uh, reasons for valuation of, of, of stocks and, and just other assets and, uh, and what's going on in the economy. Well, yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge question. It's a good one, um, but there's there's so much you know going on there. Uh, you know, part of it is um, you know the Fed has explicitly targeted asset prices as a way to try and boost the economy. It's 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 really backwards, um, right? I mean, it, they're really trying they, since Ben Bernanke's time. Um, the Fed explicitly tried to pro, to to boost the prices of risk assets to create a wealth effect. 
Um, and they, they didn't hide that. They said, we're going to literally try it. We're going to buy up treasuries, buy up these risk-free assets, push interest rates to zero to try and push people out the risk curve. So they have to buy corporate bonds. They have to buy stocks, these types of things. Because when the prices of those go up, people are going to feel wealthier. Then they'll go spend more. And it's trickle-down economics, essentially, uh, you know, from a monetary side of things rather than from the fiscal you know side of things so um you know by targeting asset prices you're 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 by definition going to create financial bubbles where you dis where prices get disconnected from their underlying fundamentals and when you look at you know like um, my favorite chart to represent this is you know household net worth relative to gdp uh and they probably you know Household net worth should grow in line with the economy over time. Um, it's really not possible for it to grow faster than the economy. But what we've seen since, you know, uh, the late 90s, you know, when Alan Greenspan first basically, you know, established the foundation for the Fed put uh, by riding to the stock market's rescue in 1987, even though the economy was fine, um, you know, he cut interest rates a ton to try and prevent any type of recession. And he did again in 1998 when the economy was doing fine. We have long-term capital management, uh, you know, potentially going to bring down the financial system, but the economy was okay. He cut interest rates again and then put liquidity into the system heading into the Y2K uh, potential te technological debacle. Uh, and we, that, you know, that was the blow off in the NASDAQ. So, you know, through that process, the Fed has um, explicitly divorced asset prices from their fundamentals, attempted to do so. And I think this is why we see these huge booms. We see bubbles and busts. We saw the dot-com bubble and a painful bust afterwards. Saw a housing bubble. Alan Greenspan explicitly tried to create the housing bubble. Okay, where the stock market's going to crash, where it's going to create a pain for the economy. If I lower interest rates and encourage people to take on um, you know, adjustable rate mortgages and these types of things and encourage speculation in real estate, that'll maybe save us from the pain of the dot-com bust. Uh, and then let's create a wealth effect in the stock market after the you know, financial crisis. So there's just this pattern where the Fed has targeted asset prices and really no other central bank on the planet has done it anywhere to the degree the Fed has done it. Um, and so, I mean, that that's one um, that's one part of it. Uh, you know, that, that's not just this euphoric speculation. It's the Fed explicitly spending 20 years at least trying to do this. How did you read uh, Powell's comments last week or his answer to the question about whether the Fed had had any role in exacerbating inequality? Well, I mean, it's... Uh... It's completely disingenuous, right? I mean, you can't say we're trying to create a wealth effect, but we're playing no role in wealth inequality, right? If you say you know that, uh, you know, oh, it's only a minority of households own uh, financial assets, the majority, vast majority of households own no financial assets, and we're going to try and push up the prices of those, you're saying we know we're going to create wealth inequality. So for them to say, you know, we, we have, you know, we play no part at all, is, uh, you know, it's the Fed trying to tell a lie enough times that people will believe it um, to, to bungle a Danny Kahneman quote. Um, you know, he said that uh, Danny Kahneman, terrific behavioral economist, brilliant guy, um, has said that, you know, uh, people in power, whether you're, you know, Fed chair, president, you know, even a marketer, you know, marketer with a position of, of being able to tell stories to people, um, they all know that, that uh 
in order to get somebody to believe something, just repeat it over and over. And um, I think that's what the Fed is hoping to do right now. But I really do think it's it's failing because they keep getting asked this question. Um, we keep seeing, you know, wealth um, disparity grows, you know, worse and worse every year. And it, it, it's even grown much worse as a, as a part of this, uh, you know, economic crisis created by the, the pandemic. So, um, you know, I, I don't think Jay Powell believes it when he says it, but he's trying to get other people to believe it. And it's interesting, too, because we're living through a moment, obviously, where there's unbelievable social unrest. And whatever the catalyst for that was, it's happening at a scale where it brings up almost definitionally these larger questions of inequality, right? And and I think one of the problems, to your point about why just repeating this particular lie isn't holding water as well as they might hope, is that it's just so clearly untrue. And it, it, there's all these evangelists now for the fact that this is a huge part of what's happened, right? And you just, there's, you know, it's like throwing a dartboard at which chart you want to show the relationship between this sort of artificial growth and asset prices and inequality. Yeah, you know, we're, there's, there's, um, you know, a lot going on, but I do believe certainly that, um, you know, a lot of the protesting and, and stuff is, is, it, obviously, it's ostensibly about Black Lives Matter, and, and it really should be. There's, you know, a, a great deal of change that needs to happen there because we've seen so much tragedy um, in that area. But, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, I think there are a lot of people feeling disenfranchised. Um, wealth inequality is just one part of it. Uh, you know, you look at, um, you know, real incomes over my lifetime. I'm 46 years old. Real incomes over my lifetime have gone nowhere. Um, you know, uh, that, that is a problem. Uh, and when you parse that out, you see that, you know, CEO pay has gone, you know, through the roof, uh, and pay for the average workers actually down in real terms. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of those dynamics at play that are, are making people, I think, more empathetic for what's going on in specific certain circumstances, like, you know, Black Lives Matter and people being, um, disenfranchised. So, uh, you know, it, it just resonates with people more when, when you feel like you've been disenfranchised in, in ways too, that are clearly not fair. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I feel like the, we've obviously seen over the last, you know, four years in particular, but really over the last 10 years, the emergence of populist strands on both sides of the aisle, right? The kind of left populism and, and right populism. And it's kind of useful, actually, for people in power to keep that division because then they fight with each other. But there's a growing sort of space or a growing shared sense of underlying fundamental argument. And I guess I wonder how much do you think that uh, some of these sort of uh, economic policies, which would have been unimaginable five or 10 years ago, things like UBI or MMT are now predestined or now inevitable. I mean, how, you know, are, are they just based on the kind of where politics overlaps with, uh, with economic policy? Do, do, you, do you see those coming down the line? Well, I, I think we, we already have MMT. Um, MMT started back in the fall when we had the repo um, issues. Uh, you know, the repo issues essentially um, came from too much. My, this is my my perspective on it is that we had too much. We had a trillion dollar deficit 
And the federal government mostly funds, uh, it likes to fund its deficits generally with short-term debt treasury bills. And so we had massive treasury bill issuance uh, in the fall um, to start funding this trillion dollar deficit, which I don't think a lot of people appreciate either that this is the, the first time we've had a real, real fiscal deficit during an economic expansion. It's really 1968 was the only other time. If you look back through history, my friend John Hussman has pointed this out um, you know, over the last year or two. 1968 was the only other time where we saw uh, a, a real significantly widening. And back then, we saw the deficit grow to 2.5% of GDP during an economic expansion. And what happened afterwards, we, we, had, we got inflation and, and problems with, you know, having to break, you know, it was 1971, Nixon had to break the dollar's convertibility into gold and, you know, these types of things. So there were problems that creeped up pretty quickly afterwards. This time we've seen, you know, the deficit grow to 5% of GDP, not just two and a half during an, uh, during an economic expansion. Now that we're in recession, we're going to push 18, 20% of GDP. And so, uh, but my point was back in the fall, essentially the Fed had to step in and start funding that treasury issuance because there was too much treasury bill issuance and not enough demand to buy those securities. And so the Fed had to come in and, you know, under the guise of rescuing repo, but they had to start funding, the, directly funding the federal government is, is my my interpretation of that. And so these measures they're doing now are just the same thing. This is not QE to boost asset prices anymore, which is what it was for the past decade. This is QE to fund the government because the government cannot pursue these fiscal programs, the the sending people checks, the the, the PPP, you know, these types of programs that they're doing. Um, there's, they have to issue debt and there's not enough buyers of that debt to get it done. Interest rates would go to the moon. Uh, and so the Fed is literally just stepping in to monetize that debt because they have to. And that's a huge distinction. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. CypherTrace helps grow the crypto economy by making it trusted by governments and safe for consumers and investors. How do they do it? By protecting VASPs, banks, and other financial institutions from crypto laundering risks while protecting user privacy. Years of research have created the world's best cryptocurrency intelligence with the best attribution and deepest token coverage. So if your virtual asset business isn't using CypherTrace to manage compliance risks, you should start now. Learn more at CypherTrace.com. I've read a number of uh, of pieces of yours that have to do with kind of making this point about what we perceive to be these massive injections of liquidity, or at least that's the popular narrative from you know money printer go burr, right? That's it, that's the meme encapsulation of this. When I think your point has been that you have to contextualize that with what the treasury is actually spending. Yeah, well, I think there's you know two different implications for. Uh, you know what's going on in terms of monetary policy right now. The first is this is QE that is is not to boost the markets. This is QE that's a product of fiscal dominance. Essentially, they're issuing so much debt, the Fed has to come in and buy it. 
Otherwise, interest, you know, we could potentially see a debt spiral. Um, that's important. That's a huge distinction in QE that, um, you know, this is, this is totally a different type. But when it comes to the financial markets, yeah, there's a lot of people that say, well, look, the Fed is printing money. You know, whenever they've done this in the past, it's been good for the stock markets. So you have to buy stocks. Well, when you look back at QE one, two, three, you can go back and look and see that the you know the the, the buying that the Fed was doing um, amounted to X dollars, um, and Treasury issuance amounted to Y dollars. When you do X minus Y, you either have a net liquidity coming into the market or uh, you know coming out. And so um, QE one, Fed starts buying up Treasuries, creating net liquidity, and stock prices go up. They stop. Stock prices correct. Um, the correlation between the money printing and stock prices is so great that everybody's come to believe now that when they print money, it's time to buy stocks. But, you know, especially over the last, you know, uh, several years, when the Fed has been buying, you know, Treasury issuance has not been, you know, that great until last fall. Um, but now, the Fed's, you know, just expanded its balance sheet $3 trillion. People think, oh, my God, it's the greatest liquidity injection in history. It is, but when you compare it to treasury issuance and look at net liquidity, uh, it's actually turned negative already. Um, last week, the Fed's balance sheet grew by, I think, $3 billion and treasury is issuing, uh, you know, about $200 billion um, a week right now. And so you're having, you know, back in March, April, Fed was purchasing $500 billion a week. That is the biggest, you know, short-term liquidity injection we've ever seen. And you know, when the Treasury is only issuing fifty billion, that's net four hundred and fifty billion liquidity, and it goes directly into risk assets and these types of things that boost stock prices. But now, that that positive two, three, four hundred billion of weekly net liquidity is turning to a negative um, two, three hundred billion uh, for you know, as far as the eye can see. So the Fed is still printing a ton of money, but Treasury issuance is swamping that that uh, money printing. That's a really important distinction that Stan Druckenmiller um, pointed out a couple of weeks ago. And I think most investors just think, oh, they're printing money, we got to buy. Well, net, net liquidity. I mean, they're printing because they have to, but they're still not even printing enough to, to, to be positive for the stock market. What are the implications of that particular type of printing, right? If we have a if we have a kind of a, a a mental model for what it looks like when real liquidity is injected as it relates to asset prices, what does it mean to basically be monetizing this debt? Well, it eventually means that you know, from the way I look at it, that the currency is going to bear the brunt of this. Um, that the Fed is you know has talked about yield curve control, basically saying. We will not allow interest rates to go up across the curve, whether you're talking about overnight rates, one month, three month treasury bills, all the way up to the 30 year bond. We're not going to let interest rates go up. We're going to cap them at a certain rate, which means if there is selling of those securities and you know pushing interest rates higher, the Fed has to come up and buy all of that uh, that supply, that selling in order to you know keep the interest rate at a certain level. Um, you know, they can make that promise. I think they probably will, especially if the economy um, doesn't recover as fast as most people hope. Um, and the pandemic kind of stays with us. We see a second wave. You know, the economy is going to, you know, people are going to get very discouraged and, and the Fed's going to have to do something more than they've already done. But if the Fed is, is committed to yield curve control, um, you know, they might face a situation where, yeah, the government has a $3 trillion deficit. So we have to print $3 trillion a year 
essentially for as far as the eye can see. Um, at some point, uh, you know, overseas investors, you know, mainly um, Chinese, you know, Japanese uh, investors are going to see, hey, we're getting paid, what is it, um, 50 basis points, half a percent to buy a 10-year treasury note, and they're expanding the money supply at 20% a year. Um, you know, that, that, that means we're losing 19.5% a year on our investment in 10-year treasury notes, nobody is going to sit around and say, all right, I'll hold that security. So what happens? They start selling those securities. The Fed is forced to buy more to keep the interest rate at half a percent. And the selling of those securities comes, you know, comes out of dollars, goes back into yen or Chinese yuan. And those currencies are already undervalued versus the dollar. So um, the dollar could have a, a very major bear market, I think, over the next several years. Yeah, I wanted to. That's where I wanted to go next. Is what's your take on? You know, there's a lot of different theories of the dollar that are floating around. We've had Brent Johnson on, who talked obviously about the dollar milkshake. We've had Jeffrey Snyder, who's you know kind of talked about how impotent the Fed is ultimately in the face of the you know kind of shadow bank and euro dollar market. You are uh, you are a bear. You think the dollar is overvalued relative to everything else, and that even with the comparative forces like the relative strengths, the dollar could be in for. A, a rough time. Well, in the sh- in the short term, you know, if the stock market rolls over again, we could see another pop higher in the dollar just as a, a safety trade. I mean, that's just a a reflex that traders traders do. You know, stuff starts going down. You know, um, stuff starts going sideways around the world. We got to buy dollars. Um, so, in the short run, yes, but in the long longer term, if you look at to me, there's two fundamentals for the dollar. One is the fiscal situation. If you look at the dollar over the last 25 years, it's very closely followed the federal deficit as a percent of GDP. So we had a fiscal surplus in the late 90s, um, you know, into the into 2000, and the dollar was very, very strong. Um, then the dot-com bubble, you know, burst. We started seeing having some deficits, you know, from the fiscal side trying to deal with recession and stave off recession through you know tax cuts or what have you and the dollar rolled over in 2002 3 into a major bear market that didn't end until 2009 um and that was you know if you look at the trend of deficits over that time in the dollar they're very closely related in 2010 or 11 we saw you know the the deficits that were part of the financial crisis start to recede uh and and kind of go back from whatever it was, I think eight percent of GDP, you know, back up to you know two three percent of GDP, which was very bullish for the dollar. We had a really good, strong bull bull run for the dollar in, you know, thirteen fourteen, um, even into fifteen. But when the deficit started widening again uh, under the you know after the Trump tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts and tax cuts for the wealthy created this five percent of GDP deficit. That immediately became a huge anchor to me around around the neck of the dollar, and we saw the dollar peak in what was it late fifteen, early sixteen, and roll over pretty hard. Um, it rallied since then, but it really hasn't made new highs, uh, at least in terms of the dollar index. And uh, you know the the fundamentals are deteriorating rapidly in terms of the the deficit. So that's a longer term, very bearish thing for the dollar. The other fundamental that I look at is something like uh, purchasing power parity. Which is you know how far you know how much does a dollar buy you versus a euro versus a you know, and 
a good shorthand for that is the Big Mac index that the the Economist tracks, and they track all the ingredients that go into a Big Mac and what it would cost you in different currencies. And purchasing power parity or the Big Mac index, they sh- you know shows that the dollar is overvalued relative to every other currency on the planet, anywhere from twenty to forty percent overvalued uh, against euro, yen, um, Chinese yuan, and so. Uh, you know, it's not only is it overvalued, but the fundamentals are deteriorating rapidly. So to me, that is something I, you know, I have to be bearish on for that reason. Do you think, uh, do you think that the, well, I guess actually this is kind of two, two questions wrapped into one, one that's the follow on and then one that's kind of a new topic, but the, there are a number of speculations around how the kind of post COVID world might reorganize itself economically, right? You're, I, I would be surprised if we didn't see reshoring show up as a as a as a you know buzzword by the end of this year, as people talk about you know shifting supply chains and you know there, there's obviously also the larger context of a trade war uh, with China or at least uh, trade intrigue. How does this play into this question of what the dollar does, or or does it? I guess in your estimation. Well, I do think it plays into into it into that because you know globalization probably was one of the f- factors that you know uh, I guess solidified use of the dollar um, worldwide. You know, shipping um, jobs and factories and things overseas means that those uh, those uh, companies and what have you can do you know essentially do business in dollars over there, borrow money in dollars, and you know, and 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 so. Um, and then use of the the dollar as a currency and trade just becomes much much more, um, I guess, ingrained in, in in the process. But you know this this idea of deglobalization is is so important. I, I do think that we saw peak globalization, you know, around a decade ago, maybe over a decade ago, just before the financial crisis was maybe the peak in globalization. And since then, we've seen a trend towards deglobalization. And this is going to be exacerbated by the the pandemic. That we we see what are the risks of shipping production of you know healthcare supplies to China. Um, it, those are major major risks, and uh, you know risks to company supply chains. Um, you know it's 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 a problem, uh, and so I do think we're going to see that shift. Um, but there's there's much bigger implications than than just for the dollar you know to me the dollar right part of part of this deglobalization uh, maybe the biggest single effect of deglob or of globalization over the past 40 years or whatever is disinflation right we've we've been able to ship jobs overseas lower costs and that's brought down the inflation rate um, so when you look at deglobalization, what does that mean? That means this trend of disinflation driven by shipping, you know, offshoring of labor and, and what have you has probably come to an end. And that single most powerful disinflationary force is in the process of re- reversing to more of an inflationary force. Um, and, and that has huge implications for, uh, you know, the economy, of, of course, right? If, we, if we're moving from disinflation to inflation over, you know, I'm talking about a long-term time frame, that's a big deal. Um, but it also says that, you know, that globalization was probably the single biggest factor too in corporations being able to raise their profit margins uh, and capital essentially winning at the expense of labor over a 30, 40 year period. So, um, you know, deglobalization probably means 
falling profit margins and a return of labor share of income, growing labor share of income for the first time in a long time, which is probably not great for corporate profit margins and thus for valuations of for equities and, and things like that. I mean, it's interesting when you kind of put it that way. And I think about this a lot as it relates to the questions of globalization and deglobalization. It's, you know, there's always winners and losers in these scenarios. But, you know, are any of this, do you do you think that any of the sort of painful processes catalyzed or at least accelerated by this, you know, the shutdowns that we've seen are net net leave us better off than we are now, right? Is it a is it a healthy thing to return to you know having a higher labor share of of profits, or is that is it going to be so painful on the way that it's hard to to even think like that? No, I think I think it's something that has to happen. In fact, uh, you know, I, I wrote about this recently. Warren Buffett wrote about this back in right around 2000, um, where he was making the case that equity valuations were too high, people are going to be disappointed. Part of that was because he thought uh, corporate profit margins um, were already too high and that they would have to come down. Um, That labor share was too low back then. Um, And that if labor share didn't rise and corporate profits didn't come down, that there would be political problems. And so he thought we wouldn't get that far, that that labor share would have risen by now. And so we would have avoided these political problems. But what the exact opposite's happened. Labor share has sunk to new lows and profit margins to record highs. And I'm really, when I say profit margins, I'm talking about corporate profits as a percent of GDP. That's like the inverse of labor share. So it's either capital takes a certain amount of the income or labor takes a certain amount of the income. Capital's been taking a much, much greater share for 25 years now. And so this, I think this really helps to explain the, quote, political problems that we're seeing today. Um, and so, you know, I think it's way, way, way overdue that labor takes back some of that share that, you know, we've been way too capital focused and, you know, I wrote about it in the context, too, of, you know, the, the Fed, Fed's role by targeting asset prices has really perpetuated this, uh, has, has not really allowed labor share to come back. And so, you know, the Fed's, Fed's dual mandate is stable prices and full, uh, full employment. Um, you know, part of their mandate is to target labor, is to try and help labor um, through full employment. But they do that through the capital markets. And so you cannot really help labor by, by propping up capital, um, which is exactly what they're trying to do. And so, you know, this is going to happen in other ways. It's going to happen through the political process um, because now that uh, it's gone on for so long, that labor share has been so low that, you know, a lot of the political movements that we're seeing now are going to, you know, lead to the things that do give labor share, you know, uh, a boost. And, and it's, like I said, it's, it's long overdue. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder, or I guess I'm, I'm always worried about uh, political capture, right? Like what you just described is uh, an important phenomenon that has, you know, basically right versus left get layered onto that, but it's an important thing. Uh, but it, it feels like it's going to get so wrapped up in and politicized, right? And just by the nature of our discourse. Well, it is. Uh, but, you know, this is why we're seeing the rise of populism on the left and the right. You know, this is why we see Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders get more attention than any other candidates, because, uh, you know, they are the 
populist on the right and the populist on the left. And people are tired of, they're not going to vote for middle of the road politicians. Um, you know, yeah, we might have Joe Biden, you know, as the Democratic nominee, the most probably middle of the road candidate there was. Um, but, you know, that's the Democratic Party trying to hold on to, um, you know, vestiges of, you know, Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama and and these type of middle of the road candidates. Uh, but you have, you're seeing Biden have to go more and more left than he's clearly comfortable going um, because he knows if he doesn't, he's, he's not going to win the election. And he'll probably have to pick a running mate that represents this more uh, populist uh, left part of the party in order to kind of, I mean, he's, he's already said it's really, really, where are the, the Bernie bros, right? They're, they're not, they're not coming to, you know, his rallies and he's, he's having a hard time kind of, uh, you know, getting that part of the vote out. So, um, you know, I, I do think it's going to be politicized, but we're going to see just populism on the on the left and the right. And I do think when at the end of the day, if you were to take true populist candidates on the left and the right, they probably have more in common with each other than differences with each other. Although the parties like to, you know, and the media loves to emphasize their differences. Um, you know, if we have if we just go back and forth through the next 12 years of, uh, you know, populist on the left, populist on the right. You're probably going to trend kind of in the same direction in terms of policy. Well, that's interesting. And a, a, a lot of people have made that point around how fast, uh, you know, Republicans in Congress and the Senate join the call for emergency stimulus measures, right? How quickly that that Overton window on on things like universal basic income shifted or started to shift, at least. Yeah. And I mean, they were super quick to send the checks out and Donald Trump signed the checks, right? He's, yeah. he's not supposed to <laughs> sign the checks. So clearly he was very, very supportive of what was a, uh, you know, a policy from, um, you know, Andrew Yang, which was, you know, even too, lib you know, too progressive for, for most Democrats to talk about. And then all of a sudden, you know, Trump's on board with it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of like politicizing of it, but both parties on the left and the right, uh, you know, populists want an infrastructure package. We They want to use MMT to get what they want. I, you know, I think there's there's more, like I said, there's more, a lot more similarities than differences. Yeah, it's, I think one of the great counterfactuals of history, probably for, for novelists more than historians at some point, will be what if COVID had hit American shores about a month or a month and a half earlier in terms of the Democratic primaries, how different it might have looked. Um, but that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Well, you know, it's to me, it's very interesting that, you know, Bernie was essentially screwed out of the nomination last time. Right. And uh, it looks like, you know, he might have been this time, too. Uh, you know, Biden so badly fumbled the, uh, you know, all of the debates, uh, you know, it. it the the way you know the political there, there are a lot of problems with our political process right i mean you know there's there's a quote that it's the it's the the best of uh you know a lot of bad bad choices um so there 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 are problems with it but you know it's very clear to me that the democratic party is moving towards bernie sanders aoc it's moving in that direction and you know either the party's going to get on board with it or you know um they're going to get abandoned by their you know that we're going to see more independent um candidates um because really any kind of enthusiasm that there was out there uh was really around you know bernie and elizabeth warren there really wasn't much enthusiasm out there um at least from my perspective for for other candidates no i think you're right um so let me shift, shift gears just a little. You know, this year we've seen 
uh, a lot of our, our sacred cows, things we wouldn't have uh, anticipated or, or we couldn't have believed, you know, just a, a few months earlier become normalized in some way. And I wonder if you think that there are others that are on the horizon that you would make bets on. So for example, uh, do you think we'll see negative interest rates? But that's just a, an example. You know, I'm, I'm interested in your take on what economic orthodoxies might be on their way out the door. Well, gosh, I mean, you know, the ones that we've seen already are things that we thought we'd we'd never see, right? Um, you know, the the money printing on this kind of a scale, uh, you know, um, there have been a couple of economists. You look at just the expansion in M2. Um, this is something we've never seen in the United States, really in any develop, developed nation. It's really only Argentina and, um, you know, Zimbabwe and play, you know, our money supply is expanding that fast. It's, it's really something that's never been seen before in a developed economy. So those are the types of things that we thought that I thought, you know, there's, there's no way um, the powers that be would ever let that, let that happen. Right. Because the risks of, of, uh, you know, um, inflation spiraling into hyperinflation and massive currency devaluations are just too big, right? The, the risks far outweigh the reward, the short-term rewards you get from, you know, propping up the stock market or whatever for a short period of time outweigh the potential risks that we're going to see. So, um, you know, I, I do think we're going to see some major change. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, you know, huge fan of, of, uh, Steve Bannon, but he did call attention to Neil Howe's book, The Fourth Turning. And I do think Steve Bannon is a brilliant person. Um, I don't agree with all his politics, but I do think he's a brilliant person. And, and uh, you know, fourth, the idea that we're in the midst of a fourth turning is a very compelling one that every hundred years or so we see a major, you know, social revolution. Um, and it, it represent, you know, it, it's manifest in a change in our politics and our society in a lot of different ways. I think we're, we are literally in the midst of that right now with the Black Lives Matter, you know, movement um, really, you know, just gaining traction uh, with, with most Americans. Um, wanting a change in policing, which probably means a change in, you know, gun laws and, you know, things that we thought, well, that's just not going to happen, you know, during our lifetimes. Um, but it's also going to be a change in our politics like we were talking about. So I think we're going to see major, major change, change in labor share going forward, uh, focus more on that. I, I think, you know, to me, those are the major trends that I'm paying attention to that we're already seeing in the early stages of, but these things are like freight trains. They're not going to stop. They're only going to gain more and more traction with people. Um, so long as they feel, you know, disenfranchised as a, as a result of a lot of these things that we've been talking about, these trends. And so, um, I, we yeah we're going to see a lot of change it's it's inevitable um and we're in one of those periods where where um that that's happening it's playing out right now and it's hard to see it in real time but when when people write the history books you know 50 years from now they're going to say look back and say that 2020s time was was a time of great upheaval and major change What's your take? You know, there's a lot of talk about V-shape versus W-shape versus U-shape versus pick your letter shape recoveries. How do you see the recovery playing out from here? And is it just totally dependent on what happens with the virus? Yeah, I think it is dependent on what happens in the virus to some extent. Um, you know, in, in terms of the shapes, you know, you could say we're seeing a V and an upside down V. Um, you know, my friend uh, Peter Atwater is, tall, you know, 
use the term the K-shaped recession because you see, you know, people who are making a lot of money and can work remotely and they're doing fine, right? And in fact, the stock market's up, so they, you know, their retirement accounts are doing great. People who don't own assets who are in jobs that you can't do remotely, these people are hurting, right? We have these lines at food banks and things. And so we already have a K-shaped recovery that is exacerbating these inequalities that you know, we've been talking about. But I do think, too, that we're going to see, you know, one of the things I worry about is that pe people who think that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery are, you know, um, you know, I, I want some of what they're drinking right? because <laughs> it's it makes no sense to me at all that, uh, you know, restaurants, right? We've reopened. Uh, restaurants are still down 78, 80% uh, year over year. Um, you know, all the travel related stuff is just not coming back. And that's a huge, huge part of the economy. So, you know, people who think we're V-shaped, you know, there's no way that that stuff's going to come back to 100% and tell people until we have a vaccine. Uh, it, that is if we get a vaccine at some point in the future. And so, you know, the the dam economic damage is is real and it's going to be lingering. There's going to be permanent job loss. Uh, and so, I think we're really in a time right now that was reminds me of, you know, late 2007, even early 2008, where people thought, okay, stock market went down 10%, you know, 15%, something like that. We, uh, you know, had, had uh, you know, um, Bear Stearns failed, but, you know, that's probably the extent of it. We're going to be okay. Market, you know, market's going to come back. Economy's going to come back. And then, you know, wasn't very much longer that people realized, wait a second, no, this is spiraling into something much bigger. And I think it's already spiraling. I think we just, you know, we probably just popped the biggest corporate debt bubble in history, which, you know, if you understand how cycles work, the credit cycle just turned and you can't just turn it back on. Uh, once you ha start having these delinquencies, downgrades, defaults, um, this is a process where credit's going to just get tighter and tighter going forward, which causes more and more problems uh, for companies that are kind of on the verge of going bankruptcy. We're going to have record bankruptcies. There's all kinds of repercussions of this. So I I'm not bullish at all about the economy. In fact, I think it's it's probably... Um, you know, at best going to be uh, um, a, a swoosh, you know, where we see this huge downdraft this quarter and a very slow climb back that, you know, just like the uh, whatever it was, the Congressional Budget Office said, it's going to take 10 years to get back to where we were last year. Um, you know, I, I think that's that's probably the most realistic forecast I've seen. How do you think about uh, positioning yourself in that type of context? Well, you know, I'm, I always say, you know, for me, I never let my macro concerns get away, get in the way of taking uh, advantage of micro opportunities. So when I find cheap stocks in the market, I'm going to buy those. Uh, and then if I'm if I have macro concerns, I'm going to hedge those. And so, um, you know, I have a, a very significant net short position on right now because I do think the stock market's going to at least test its March lows. To me, that would be a best case scenario. If we tested the March lows and then rallied off of those, that would be best case. Uh, much more likely is I think we take out the March lows and go significantly lower, um, you know, as a function of falling profits and falling revenue growth and and, and what have you. So, uh, and 
when you see a credit cycle turn, Hyman Minsky did some you know great work about this. What happens is not only do people tighten credit, banks and uh, and companies they have to start delevering their balance sheets, delevering, and so they have to start selling off assets. That creates a, a spiral of, of falling prices, which feeds on itself. And I think we that that process already started. Um, the markets just aren't 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 quite aware of it yet. Um, but I do think that probably most important thing uh, for the average investor, uh, I, I think, is to just be conservative, right? When there's nothing to do in the market, do nothing. Uh, and that's the hardest thing to do, too, is to do nothing. But there really isn't much opportunity in the stock market. There's not much opportunity in, in really any markets that I look at. Like I said, the 10-year Treasury note paying a half a percent. That, you know, after inflation, that's a guaranteed negative rate of return. But you also, right, I don't want to hold a bunch of cash when M2 is growing at, uh, you know, the fastest rate in history. They're debasing, the, you know, devaluing the currency as rapidly as they've ever done. And so it's very important to have some type of exposure to real assets. To me, my favorite uh, is gold. I think it's the the most proven over the long term. It's the easiest to trade and hold. But probably all real assets over the next 10 years are going to perform much, much better than financial assets. It's kind of a, a bleak, if realistic, outlook uh, for the economy uh, you know, going forward. But I guess within that, what keeps you or, or do you find sources of sort of optimism about the changes we're going through? Oh, I, I absolutely do. I think you have to, you know, to me, it's you think about any major change that you've made in your own life, right? Uh, for the better. It's usually the product of getting to a very painful place where you've had a very bad experience. You've been extremely disappointed, um, maybe even embarrassed in, you know, something that you you did. You had to get to a place where you were in such, you know, pain that you, you were forced to make a change in your life. And I do think that's where we are with the, with, uh, you know, in terms of our society, with the Black Lives Matter and uh, a lot of these other iniquities that, you know, we've been talking about. But I do think too, you know, what I'm most hopeful of as, you know, a capitalist and somebody who makes his living in the markets is that I think we're going to get to a place where we're going to realize um, this has been a ma- this monetary experiment of the last 25 years is going to prove to be a massive failure, and we're going to need to make a change, uh, a real significant change to our monetary framework. This is our third central bank that we've had in this country. The first two failed, and we vowed we would never ever allow another central bank in this country again. Uh, then in the early 1900s, we decided. JP Morgan can't come to the you know banking system's rescue by himself every time. We need somebody else to do it. So we created the Fed in order to be the lender of last resort um, during a banking crisis. Now that morphed into something much, much bigger than what it was really originally intended to be. Um, which is always the problem with these things is we have, you know, well, wait a second, maybe then just instead of just, you know, rescuing us in danger, maybe you can actually work to make us make things better. And in the process, they make things much, much more, more difficult and, and worse. And so I, I, I do think we're heading towards a time where it's going to become obvious to everyone that the monetary framework that has been employed not only here, but in Japan and Europe is a disaster. And we're going we're gonna to go back to uh, a system that makes, you know, that's much more sustainable, much uh, creates a, a much healthier foundation for the economy. So I, yeah, I am, I am optimistic about that. 
Well, it's great to hear. And it's great to hear all so many insights on so many different topics. Uh, Jesse, I really appreciate your time. I know my listeners have as well. And uh, I'd love to have you back again sometime to, to get even deeper on, on some of these big issues of our day. Well, this was, this was great. I, I enjoyed it. And yeah, I'd be happy to do it again. Great. Well, thanks so much. And I'll talk soon. I was listening to an interview earlier this week with Joseph Nye on hidden forces. And Joseph Nye is a famous political scientist. He was one of the theorists that came up with this idea of soft power. And his new book is about the moral dimension of power, how morality influences political affairs. And there is a school of thought that says when it comes to foreign policy, it's really just about national interest. And then politicians give it kind of a a little moral window dressing to sell it to the public. And the thesis of his book is that that's simply not true. And he looks at presidents between Truman and today to kind of make his point that the particular moral compass and moral decision making of each of those individual leaders has a demonstrable impact on the decisions that they made. And I was thinking about that in the context of my conversation with Jesse today, in the sense that markets like to pretend that there is no dimension to them other than the pure capitalist impulse the pure allocation of capital outside of and around any values and morality. And I'm not talking about ESG stocks or anything like that, but this is kind of the story, the narrative of capitalism. But of course, capitalism is not divorced from the context in which it operates, and markets have specific political regimes in which they operate as well. And they are, despite what they would like sometimes, responsive to changes in those political regimes and changes in the values of those political regimes. And right now we are living through this moment of upheaval where one of the major underlying questions, perhaps the underlying question, has to do with inequality. And that inequality has a huge number of dimensions. Obviously, the most pronounced part of this in these protests right now is racial inequality and what that might mean. But there's another dimension of inequality which has to do with wealth, which has to do with economic opportunity. And there are more and more people asking what the real cause of economic inequality is in America. And going beyond kind of the boilerplate answers and going beyond, I think, even the sectarian party lines of the Democratic and Republican parties to really try to understand this in more complex economic terms. Jesse obviously talked a lot about that in this conversation and in the piece I started off with, this fight the Fed idea. It's amazing to me to watch more and more people who aren't necessarily paying attention to economics the way that we are, if you're a listener of this show, who are asking the same question and saying, why am I getting farther and farther behind and looking for answers and are attracted to understanding the dimension that our monetary policy actually plays in this. So I don't know if this is optimistic or pessimistic or some combination, but I will note that there is a growing conversation, a growing Overton window, to use a term that I use way too much, around the idea that the Fed does have an impact and monetary policy does have an impact. And these theoretically impervious forces do have an impact on the way that people's lives play out and that we might want something better and we might be able to, and in fact should, request something more. So Something to chew on as you go off about your week, but until tomorrow, guys, I appreciate you listening, and be safe and take care of each other. Peace.